If you'll join me in the letter of Jude, the book of Jude, if you need help finding that, it is the second to last book of the Bible just prior to Revelation. It's probably only one page, so don't miss it. If you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seat back in front of you, that is on page 1027. This morning we will be looking at verses 5 through 7. The title of our sermon is The Consequences of Apostasy. And the key words for our worshipers in training are apostate, darkness, and punishment. Now if you ever undertake a serious study of philosophy, you will find that one of the major questions that nearly every philosopher throughout the history of the world has sought to answer is the question of morality. What is it? How is it defined? How do we arrive at a conclusion as to what is moral and what is not? As you might imagine, there have been many, many attempts at answering uh, that question, all of which actually only fall into two different categories. Either it is a philosophy that is consistent with a biblical worldview, so it either is put forward and is Christian, truly a Christian worldview, or it is borrowing from the Christian worldview, or the other option is that it completely falls short of anything biblical whatsoever, and so it is only built on subjective ideas. In fact, the the most honest philosophers will actually admit that. The Finnish philosopher Edvard Westermark, he he wrote this, he said, no moral judgments have generally objective validity. So here's what he means by that to translate philosophical speak for you. He says, all values, all moral principles that a person has are to be determined socially from context to context. So what's morally acceptable in one context may not be morally acceptable in another context, that either neither context is right or wrong. They're only right or wrong based on what the society determines at large. John Stuart Mill, the father of utilitarianism, the author of the very famous work On Liberty, said, a truly progressive society will encourage and allow what he called experiments in living, Mill said the only reason for any society to ever prevent or control the moral actions or activities of any person in any way is to prevent them from harming other people. Others have put forward the idea, and if you do a little work of application, I think this will sound very familiar to you, that jealousy, pride, lust, adultery, covetousness, you name the sin, all of them, really they're just about trying to be loved and and seeking to find affection and acceptance, unconditional love from others. So the answer is that we need to just have complete toleration of everything without question. You do me, I do, uh, you do you, I do me, and and we all just need to, to love and accept one another. We need to coexist. 
This is sort of developed a bit more, at least uh, to, uh, to include the idea that if we're going to do this well, we need, to, uh, we need to affirm the need for consent if another person is involved. So a philosophy of morality has developed wherein as long as there is consent with all parties involved and no harm is done to anyone outside that circle of consent, why not engage in it? Or at the very least, tolerate and accept anyone who does engage as long as they are meeting those criteria. And what good is philosophy without its ardent supporters to try and influence the broader culture to adopt that philosophy? You will likely uh, recognize that there is a dominant worldview in every culture. There certainly is in ours. It has shifted over the past 60 years or so, picking up steam as it rolls along, no doubt. If you think of some older movies, you can sort of see when shifts are taking place. Think of movies like uh, The Matrix or The Truman Show or Vanilla Sky or What Dreams May Come. All of these sort of have this common theme to them, and they leave you to think that life is about creating your own reality, questioning whether or not you need to accept what we perceive and live in as even being true. More recently, we've seen the popularity of uh, the movie and the book Fifty Shades of Grey. It tells the world that men and women need to break free from the the typical monotonous patterns of sexual gratification and, and explore and expand the boundaries of acceptability to things that are even painful and, and other things that are unmentionable. There's the ongoing television series now, Modern Family. It explores the idea of family through the stories of a gay couple and their daughter, a straight couple and their three kids, a multicultural couple and their son, seemingly intended to defeat and overcome what they perceive to be stereotypes. Some of you will also remember the late 90s movie called Pleasantville, where we learn that the original sin isn't actually about rebelling against God. No, it's the exact opposite. It's the repression of our personal desires. Only when you indulge in what your heart really wants will the black and white world you live in become color once and for all. We could consider all sorts of things, the lyrics to songs, the plots to popular novels, even the main storyline of children's cartoons and movies. All across our culture and any culture, you will be presented with a worldview that is gaining support in some way, shape, or form. And we have to ask, as Christians, in any one of those forms of culture... Does our profession of the historic Christian faith remain compatible with our so-called tolerant society? And if not, what do we make of those who call themselves Christians but also accept the outright acceptance of the world's immorality? The question of morality exists throughout the Scriptures. We have to deal with that. 
Last week we considered Jude's call to the people of God to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And remember, we saw in verse 4 that the reason why that was so vitally important is because, Jude writes, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And, and given Jude's explanation, I think it's fair to say that the, the sins that were being confronted and the problems of the church in his day really weren't all that different from our day. One of the unifying themes of the immoral practices and, and calls for tolerance and acceptance in our day is that of sensuality, of so-called sexual liberation and, and freedom, tolerating everyone doing whatever they want and anyone calling it whatever we want, however we want. And here Jude is saying, that's a problem. That's going on. But the bigger problem the world's going to do that no matter what. The bigger problem is that that's coming in to the church. And he tells them, you Christians need to be sure that you're contending for the faith when that comes your way. Don't let that take over. Don't let that infect the body. Stand for the faith that was given to you by the prophets and the apostles. Do not waver. So here's the thing. If you're a doomsday predictor, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, Things aren't really any worse today than they were in Jude's day. We know more about them because we have greater access to the news of what's going on around the world, and things may take on different forms, but the sin that exists in the hearts of men are no different, really, from what they were dealing with. And so this is very much a message for us today. So let's look at the next few verses this morning as we... Think about the consequences of apostasy when instead of contending for the faith, we listen to and follow after ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Look at Jude with me, verse 5. Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, Judah's dealing with this issue of apostasy and specifically the consequences of apostasy, namely the consequence being the judgment of God on all who walk away from the faith. He's going to give us three examples. He gives three illustrations which he uses to show us what God does. Two of these are likely to be very familiar to you if you know the Old Testament. One of them is a bit more esoteric and you may or may not know what he's talking about. So three points from Jude, three points then for us. Jude must have been a Reformed preacher. He had three points. Very important. Notice at the beginning of verse 5, Jude says, 
Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. He's simply saying, listen, I know you already know these things. I'm going to remind you of what happened. You cannot forget these things. These are important events in history of things that God has done and he has preserved us in And we can learn from them. And here's what we are going to learn from them. And and what Jude is doing there is actually quite brilliant. Because what was happening? False teachers were coming in. And what they were saying is, I am here to declare to you something new. Something novel. Something you have not heard before. And Jude is coming and saying, I am here simply to remind you of what you have already known. I'm here to remind you of what God has done and what you have read about, what you have heard about from the Scriptures from the very beginning. So Jude is going back to the very thing we looked at last week, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Nothing new, just continuing to bring people back to the Word of God. And anyone who refuses to do that is no preacher of God's Word. Okay, first thing we see, verse 5, Jude tells us in his first point, if you do not want to be destroyed under the judgment of God, you must continue to follow Jesus Christ. Now, Jude is very brief in his description here. He's dealing with the exodus, and he gives, he gives us some information to know that. Without reading the entire account of what's going on, you can read that. It's a whole book called Exodus. You can read about that. But we can look at Paul's summary he gives us of the pertinent place that Jude is referencing, and Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. And he fixes our minds on what Jude is addressing. These few verses serve as a sort of commentary on this quick verse in 5. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. He writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of age has come. Now, there are some really great things here that I'd love to talk about. We don't have time to go into all of them, but if you notice something I do want to point out that Jude and Paul both pick up on. They're talking about the Exodus. They're talking about this thing that happened way back there in the Old Testament, a long time before Jude is writing. But who is the main actor in all of their descriptions? It's Jesus. 
It's Jesus. Jude said Jesus saved a people from the land of Egypt in verse 5. Paul says that the spiritual rock that the people drank from and that followed them was Christ, and it was Christ that the people put to the test. Now, there are a lot of debates as to whether or not Paul and Jude really were referencing Jesus. You can read all about Let me just settle it for you. It's Jesus. That's who they're talking about. The pre-incarnate, pre-flesh and blood Christ was dealing with the Israelites in the wilderness. And Paul tells us that that happened, very important to the context here, as an example for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. And Jude picks up on that same idea, that this is an example for us. What's the point? Well, the Israelites, we probably all read the accounts of the Israelites And we see what they're doing over and over again. And in our pride, a lot of times we think, what were you people thinking? You're so stupid. Why do you keep doing the same things over and over? It's all around you. It's so obvious that God is in your midst. God is doing great things. And you just go and you worship stupid, silly things. And especially... Especially those people in the days of the Exodus, all of those days prior to entering into the promised land, they saw so much of the supernatural work of God on their behalf. And we ask, what were you thinking? Well, you wouldn't have been any different. If you were, you wouldn't have been praying to God a few minutes ago in our time of confession, the same things you prayed to him last week. If you and I were any different, we would see that our salvation in Christ is no less supernatural and miraculous than what they saw when God split and parted the Red Sea, or when Moses struck the rock and water was provided and manna came from heaven. Your salvation in Christ is no less supernatural and miraculous and wonderful and beautiful And so you and I are no different from the Israelites. We're weak, we're fickle, we're sinful people with a lot of brokenness. And that brokenness can only be fixed and put back together when we look to Christ for life. So the Israelite people were called to believe the truth about God. They were called to trust God. They were called to follow God. They were called to put their faith in Him along the way. They had all that they needed in order for them to do that. Except for many of them, their hearts very quickly grew cold. And instead of looking to Christ, they looked to themselves. And so the same God that was offered to them for their hope, for their life, for their salvation, is now the God who destroys them. That's what Jews says. Jesus saved them out of the land of Egypt. They did not believe, so he destroyed them before they entered into the land of promise. Now, what was the promised land? It was, in their day, a physical piece of land, as the Bible describes, but the promised land was simply a picture. It was a type of the promised land to come that we await, the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell forever as God's people, unhindered, perfect communion with God, with our Lord Jesus Christ, reigning and ruling as co-heirs of the kingdom and all of its benefits. That's what the promised land was all about. So Judah is saying, hey, you remember those people? They came all the way up to the edge. They had their toes in the water of the Jordan River. They saw that all 
God had done. They knew all the ways the Lord had provided for them. But they were more concerned about themselves. Godliness was not on their agenda. They were, they were engaged in all forms of idolatry and sexual immorality and sensuality, playing their days away. And then Paul reminds us that God destroyed 23,000 of them in the desert in one single day by serpents and scorpions. What a lovely way to die. Now listen, that is supposed to shock us. Those things are in the Bible to shock us. It's a terrifying thing. It's a warning. It is a warning to those people who will walk the edge of truth, who see it, who understand it, who experience the effects of it, who see the effects of it in the lives of people around them, and yet they do not believe. They continue in darkness. They love the things of the world more than they could ever want to love God. You see, the thing about apostasy is that there are people who will apostatize, but up until they do, they never had it in their minds that it would ever happen. They have it in their minds that they're right with God and they have nothing to worry about. Up until the very day of judgment, the Bible tells us that there will be people who will be skipping to the judgment seat of Christ only to be told, I never knew you. Why? Because their assumptions of who they are in right relationship with Christ are all wrong. Here's the thing, many, many, many people walk through the doors of churches every Sunday morning and they will find themselves in hell one day because they've believed a false gospel and have put their hope in their own self-righteousness and their own ideas of who Jesus is, not who he really is. That's why we spend so much time saying, do you know the gospel? Do you know what the gospel is? Do you preach it to yourself? Do you remind yourself of the gospel every day, working out the implications of the gospel day by day in your life? Because we need to be reminded of our salvation and our right standing of, with God and what it is based on. Because it isn't us. It isn't because of what we have done. It isn't because of how we do it. It is because of Christ and Christ alone and what He has accomplished and what He has made us to be. Living a perfect life, taking upon himself the penalty of death, the penalty for our sin, dying for us, that by faith we may live and be credited with his righteousness. And if you don't know Christ, if you're not walking with Christ, you can know life. You can have assurance that you are safe with God when you put your hope and your trust and your faith in Jesus alone. We must know the gospel, and be reminded of the gospel day by day by day that we not believe in a false gospel that we might apostatize because eventually we can't keep it up. We can't keep up the show. We can't keep up the charades. It will all come crashing down and we have nothing to stand on. Now remember last week I said there's a reason why Jude was sure to remind us from the very get-go at the beginning of his letter, that we are kept by Jesus Christ. Because these passages are here. He deals with this at great length. It's easy for us to read all of this and say, wow, what about me? Maybe I'm going to apostatize. But Jude reminds us, 
If you are believing in Christ alone, you are kept. You will not fall away. Now, that, that doesn't mean there aren't those who, who will never see uh, the, the land of milk and honey because they, they do not continue in the faith. They, they stop following Jesus altogether. Listen, it happens. I've known men who went to seminary, who went to churches and served in churches. They worked in ministry for many years. They've preached texts like these very texts week after week. And then they didn't only stop preaching and move on to some other career. They left the church altogether. They left the faith altogether. And now they renounced Christianity altogether and have nothing to do with it. They're gone. And Jude's warning to them here is serious. If you want to escape the judgment of God, you must follow Christ until the very end. And if you are truly in Christ, here's good news for us. If you are truly in Christ, you will follow Christ to the very end. Not by your own strength, not by your own will, but because Christ will keep you. And he will not let you go. The people of Israel did not persevere. They fell away. They were destroyed in unbelief and disobedience. And Christians who have been saved from their former slavery to sin need to persevere in the faith, need to persevere in obedience to the end if they enter into the kingdom of God, the true promised land that has been given to us. Well, secondly, second point that Jude makes is an example that he's given in verse 6. And he tells us that we must submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 6. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, some of you probably came here today just to hear me explain this verse. But there are all kinds of ideas about what Jude is talking about. They are fascinating. They are a lot of fun for nerds like me to try and work through and figure out exactly what he's referencing. But I'm not going to do all of that for you this morning. Because the point that Jude is making is not about who the angels are specifically or what they did in their sin, but rather the fact that there are fallen angels. And those fallen angels, whoever they are, are inevitably judged because of their rebellion. That's Jude's main point. Point. Whether it's about Genesis 6 and the Nephilim, or a reference to First Enoch, or a reference to the Greek, Greek myth of the Titans, it could be any of these things, perhaps. And all of those ideas are really fun to read about, and to discuss, and to pontificate on. If you're really interested in digging deeper on that, you should. But that's not Jude's point here, so we're going to move past that. I don't want to get stuck in the tall grass and figuring out what he's referencing. His audience knew what he was talking about, and the point is the bigger principle. So here's his point. It relates, again, back to these false teachers, to these apostate teachers, and it has to do with their position of authority, and specifically submission to authority. Now notice Jude says the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. And whatever that that looks like exactly, is up for debate in terms of their leaving their position of authority. But the the point is that the sin of what they were doing is great. It was significant sin, and it was rebellion in their doing so. They had turned from a privileged position to sin and rebellion, just like the Israelites had done. 
And given the context, I do believe that this relates to the issue of some form of sexual sin. And that fits the context. The false teachers are dealing in sensuality. Remember, the Israelites were destroyed in the wilderness because of sexual immorality being one of the things. Later in a moment, he's going to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah and sexual immorality. So I think this issue of the angels, at least on some level, deals with that issue as well. But notice how God punishes them. It says, He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. You see, not even angels are beyond the scrutiny and judgment of God. And in fact, Jude says they're being kept for it. Well, here's the lesson. We must be aware of and mind the obligations that God has given to us, submitting ourselves to the Lordship of Christ, which means we're walking in obedience to His Word. The angels didn't do this. And and by extension... He's showing us that obviously the false teachers are not doing this. It's, it's something he's relating one to the other. These were ministers. They were supposed to be teachers of the Word of God, but they were leading people into false doctrine and lies, and they were acting as their own lords. They were acting as their own kind, which can only bring chaos and disorder. When any, per- any person lives by their own rules and their own purposes... They oppose the authority of God. That is particularly heinous when it's a person who's supposed to be preaching the Word of God and they're leading others away into a false gospel. Listen, there are a multitude of false church leaders and pastors around the world who deny the Bible's truth. And remember last week I said it shouldn't surprise us. That's the consistent message of the New Testament. There will be false teachers who come in and try to deceive. And they will catch you unaware if you're not careful and paying attention. They will seek to devour the sheep. And and listen, not all of them are as prominent as, as the Benny Hins and Joel Osteens of the world. They are false teachers living as their own lords, leading people astray without a doubt, but there are many out there who are just as deceptive and just as wicked in their rebellion against God in pursuit of loving themselves. Leaders of the church must know what it means to lead and be led, especially by God. And that's what the angels lost. That's what false teachers have lost. The ability to be led by God. But as much as that's a warning to anyone who teaches the Word of God, it's a word to every single Christian. Are you submitting yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? What does your daily life reveal? Now, many people who profess Jesus Christ with their lips show by their life a very different story altogether. I'm not, I'm not talking about sin in general in terms of it not being present. We all sin. We all continue to sin as we live life on this earth. I'm talking about a deliberate rebellion against God's authority in your life. He has committed much into your care. How are you stewarding what He has given to you? Are you abandoning God's gifts in your life? To serve your own purposes? Or do you live under the authority of God in life-giving, fruitful obedience and faithfulness to Him? It's not oppressive. It's life-giving. 
You know, there's a, there's a false teacher in South Africa right now who's been able to convince people that if they eat the grass that is growing on the front lawn of the church, that it will turn into the bread of life. He convinced them another time that if they drank gasoline, it would turn into the water of life. It's all in a video. You can, you can watch it online. So people rush out the doors. As soon as he said that, people were trampling one another to run out the front doors and to get on their hands and knees and eat grass like cows in the front lawn and choke it down. People stood inside and drank gasoline from a gas can. And then when they got sick and nearly died, the problem was them. They didn't have enough faith. You see, this kind of nonsense goes on all the time around the world I have some terrible stories, and I won't even repeat most of them because of how sickening and twisted they are. Again, most of them related to some forms of sexual immorality. These are false teachers. And listen, they didn't just show up and overnight people started eating grass. It took time. It was deliberate. It was an effort to continually bring them to the place where they backed them into a corner and then they could show through their actions that they had complete control over every individual. That's all that is. It's man proving that he can do what he wants with them any way he wants. He's demonic. He's evil. He is a liar and he is out to destroy. Now, brothers and sisters, if ever you have any kind of teacher, including me, whoever calls on you to forsake the true and right teaching of the Word of God and all the obligations God has given to you and turn yourself over to foolish actions to feed your flesh and to to wander off into all these desires of sensuality, run away, and as Paul says, let him be accursed. You have one Lord, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not give yourself over to being manipulated and controlled and led astray into false doctrine by wicked men who seek to build themselves up at the expense of others. If a man is is seeking to get other people to live in accordance with his word in a way that he himself does not live, there's a problem. He's a false teacher. And so we must know and trust and follow the Word of God and trust the Spirit's wisdom in our lives and do not do anything that we cannot see clearly in the Scriptures because that is our authority and that's whose lordship we are called to submit to. And to not submit to Christ's lordship, Jude tells us, is to be kept for destruction like the angels on the great day of judgment. Be warned. Well, lastly, this morning, we come to a very familiar example, and Jude shows us in verse 7 that denying yourself of the world, the flesh, and the temptations of the devil is far greater than being cast away into eternal judgment. Look again at verse 7. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal Fire. Now, I'm going to be like Jude here and just make some assumptions that you're familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jude here includes surrounding cities. This is all in Genesis 18 and 19. If you want to go, you can read that later. But the main issue here, again, is not 
necessarily the sin in and of itself. That's just used to illustrate the greater point of God's judgment here. And particularly, Jude is dealing with, again, what we've seen several instances now, which is sexual immorality. And specifically, in Sodom and Gomorrah, it is a sexual sin of homosexuality. Now, I will tell you, Genesis 18 and 19 get into some of the most perverse, disturbing things, not that you will only read in the Bible, but that you will read anywhere at any time. It's devastating to see to what extent people have gone in pursuit of their own fleshly desires. And remember, God destroyed those cities. He completely wipes them out because of their pursuit of what Jude calls here unnatural desires. And he writes all of that out to serve for an example for us once again. All three of these points are important and applicable to our lives, but I want to highlight particularly in our culture and particularly here in our local church that we have a lot of young families, we have a lot of young marriages, we have a lot of young children. We also have quite a few um, single people who've been married before and now it's their lives as Christians. They're having to deal with all that comes with being single and still having natural human desires now. Look, you may not struggle with something like same-sex attraction and have any desire for someone of the same sex like we see in Sodom and Gomorrah. But the warning here is just as applicable to all of us when we're dealing with things like pornography and adultery, conversations with people of the opposite sex that we shouldn't be having, scrolling through pictures on social media trying to get a glance of someone who's wearing less than they ought to as they show the world. Now, don't let the issue of sexual immorality get away from you because this example is dealing with homosexuality. Remember, the issue in verse 4, as it relates to false teachers, is sensuality in general. And in verse 8, we'll see next time again, Jude addresses the defiling of the flesh. In verse 6, the issue in the wilderness included sexual immorality. Verse 7, sexual immorality. So the issue isn't just unnatural desires of homosexual sin. The, The broader issue Jude is addressing with a warning is the importance of denying ourselves of the temptations that arise in the world, the desires that surface on the flesh and the allurements that are put before us by the devil. And for many of us, those things are tied to sensual sexual sin. How are you guarding yourself? How are you keeping yourself from falling into all kinds of perverse sexual immorality? And I'm not just talking to guys here. Ladies, are you trying to fulfill some sexual desire of the flesh in a sinful way? If you ever talk to anybody, particularly those who have been in ministry and they've fallen because of sexual sin, every single one of them will tell you It all started because they stopped pursuing God in His Word and in prayer. And then they thought their sin was quiet and private. And one thing led to another thing led to another thing. And they got to a place where when it all started, they said they would never go. I don't think we take it seriously enough when the Bible says, when Paul writes very explicitly, that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual promiscuity in any form has been so normalized socially that the church seems in many ways to be forgetting the clear teachings of Scripture. Look, that's exactly what Jude is writing about. 
Do you take that seriously? Your, your little peaks, your lingering stares, your fantasies about others, those aren't just harmless things that don't affect anyone else. Like most sin, once you start down that road, you're going to go further down that road than you ever anticipated. And then when you get there, you realize you're longing for and you're looking for something that's elusive because it can't and it won't satisfy you in the ways you thought it would. And what's on the other side of that? Guilt? Shame? Without repentance, without Christ, Jude paints a dark and frightening picture. A punishment, he says, of eternal fire. Now here's the big point. If your life is such that you are more concerned about feeding the flesh in your desires than you are with pleasing God and walking in holiness, there's a very strong indication that perhaps you are in danger of apostatizing. Does that mean if you've seen porn in the last week? And listen, a room this full of people, I know you're in here. Someone has. Does that mean that you're not a Christian? No, not necessarily. It means that I know there's guilt and there's shame and, and that because of that guilt and that shame, that, that you're feeling the weight of that. And this is a big determining factor, though, on where your soul is with God at this point in time. If that's what you're seeking after to find your desires fulfilled. What are you doing to be accountable? What are you doing to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye to keep you from walking back into that? That says a lot about the state of your soul. What am I willing to do in order to maintain godliness and holiness? You see, it's not that the sin happened, it's what I do with it when it does. Sin of every form is a dead end. It will never provide what it promises. It will never provide what we hope it will. Only Christ can and only Christ will provide the wholeness that we look for in our brokenness. And listen, maybe you are hearing this and you feel like I just loaded up and shot a a bunch of arrows at your heart. What do you do with that guilt and that shame? You see, I'm not saying this as someone who has no sin in my own life or who has never worked through the various sins of my own life. And when I sit with people day after day and hear about sins of their own lives, I'm not surprised. We're all broken. We are all messed up. And some of you are really messed up. I know. But what do we do with that? We look to the good news. You know, the Apostle Paul reminds us, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You're not alone. You're not strange. You're not, you're not any more broken than me or anyone else sitting next to you. We are all screwed up and broken. And there's no way around that in the flesh. The paradox that we struggle with as Christians is that the more we are willing to come to the end of ourselves, submitting to the Lordship of Christ in obedience to what He has commanded, the more freedom we find from our guilt and the allure of sin and the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The more I let go of myself, the more of Christ. And the more of Christ, the less I desire the things of the flesh. And if you are a child of God, you must be reminded that you will be kept by God. 
You will have days, you will have seasons that will be dark and painful and marked by sin. But if you are in Christ, you will forever be and you will not apostatize. That's good news. That's great news. Because left to ourselves, all of us would have no desire to persevere in the faith. And so the call from Jude to the church is to press on. Press on, brothers and sisters. Keep pressing on that we will not be destroyed, that we will not be kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, that we will not undergo a punishment of eternal fire, but that we will rest fully, completely, and joyfully in the Lord Jesus Christ alone forever and ever in the promised land. That is our hope. And that, by God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what all of us can look to and find our hope in. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the dear Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we, as we read the Scriptures today and as we consider all the implications of the Scriptures Every one of us, if we're honest, we see ourselves and the ways that we have found ourselves being described by those very words. Lord, none of us, none of us comes here, comes together, having perfected this life. We come as broken and needy people, knowing that our need can only be met in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray specifically this morning for anyone whose heart is burdened with guilt and the shame of sin in their own lives, that you might be pleased, God, to bring them to the end of themselves where they might find true freedom and hope and rest. Lord, that you would get them off the treadmill of this life where they keep running and seeking to find something that will not provide what they are looking for that they may be brought to look to Christ alone. And I pray for believers this morning. I pray for those who are walking in Christ, Lord, that you would give us a greater desire to walk in holiness, that our desire would be for godliness, that our desire would be to make much of glorifying Christ in our lives. And I pray, God, you would do that in us, that we would be reminded in your doing so that it is only by the work of your hand and by the grace of Christ that any of that comes about. Lord, we're not surprised by the sin of the world. We're not surprised even by our very own sin because we know our own hearts and our own flesh. We know that they grow weary. We know that they fail. And yet we know that Christ never grows weary and never fails on our behalf. And so we look to him with hope and joy and rest this morning. Lord, would you do all of these things that you'd be glorified and your church would be strengthened and encouraged along the way. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.